Welcome to the Still Navigating podcast, familiar and unusual stories from a new perspective. Hi, after nearly two years I'm back as the slightly reincarnated Still Navigating. In this episode, what's happening in West Africa? A first trip to a party political conference, a heroic bookshop and the dying art of the editor. First to West Africa, return to the Coup Belt. Thirty years ago, I travelled overland from Dakar through Senegal, Mali and Burkina Faso into Ghana and on to the capital Accra. Other than the narrow escape from a muggy in a Dakar blackout, nothing bad happened. Undertaking that journey in 2023 would take you through one of the most volatile and dangerous areas of Africa, dubbed the Coup Belt. Stretching from Guinea through Mali, Burkina Faso and Niger to Chad, this has become a complete no-go zone for independent travellers. Since 2020, there have been successful or attempted coups in Mali in August 2020 and May 2021, Chad, April 2021, Guinea, September 2021, and Burkina Faso in both January and September 2022. Behind this level of heightened risk and instability is the growing presence of jihadists linked to Al-Qaeda and Islamic State. Coups feed off instability and insecurity, and climate change is a major root cause of both. Desertification reduces the amount of usable land and extreme weather events displace people and worsen existing resource scarcities. A West African travel highlight used to be the Dogon people of central Mali. Farmers and animists, they were forced to flee persecution and to live under the Bandiagara escarpment where they've built remarkable multi-storey houses, grain stores and terraced fields. I can remember sleeping on a Dogon house roof and being woken at dawn by the first rains of the season with accompanying frog chorus. Now these people are complicit in the attempted ethnic cleansing of their neighbouring tribe, the Fulani. Four years ago, 150 Fulani men, women and children were killed by Dogon militias, sponsored by the Mali central government. Their victims, Muslim herdsmen, have ties to insurgent jihadist groups. To the south, Burkina Faso has seen 6,000 deaths this year, Central government has lost control of large parts of the north and northeast of the country to jihadist separatists. First one group in the military led by Lieutenant Colonel de Mimba seized power in January 2022, promising to end the violence. When he failed, nine months later, Captain Ibrahim Traore took over in a second coup. The situation is so serious that there's talk of some form of Islamic caliphate covering parts of Mali and Burkina Faso. Even in relatively stable Senegal and West African poster child Ghana, there's creeping jihadist influence. In northern Ghana, the poorest border with Burkina Faso is rife with illegal gold mining and smuggling and provides opportunities for infiltration and for insurgents to exploit local ethnic conflicts. Poverty and unemployment are a fertile breeding ground for radical Islam among the four million who live in Senegal's capital, Dakar. Notionally a democracy, the self-styled strongman President Macky Sall, having previously said he wouldn't run, may be positioning for an unconstitutional third term and is shutting down all opposition in preparation. Throw in Russian Wagner Group mercenaries, the weakness of the regional ECOWAS bloc and the sudden withdrawal of Western forces, and it's an ugly cocktail for the local population of this troubled region. If a map would be useful, have a look at the Return to the Coup Belt post in my blog, stillnavigating.com.
A few weeks ago, I went to my first party political conference. Here's what I made of it. Unearthing Labour's vision thing. This was my first time at a Labour Party conference. In the old days, it felt as if you had to be a party hack or very well connected to get in. This year, we just paid our money and we were only 8.23 to Liverpool Lime Street. Walking around outside the conference hall, it spot the political celebrity. There's Rachel Reeves. Isn't that West Streeting? Look, there's David Blunkett. And why is Mick Link following us? If you've been to the Edinburgh Festival, there are similarities. Less fun and less alcohol, but like Edinburgh, the main action is in the fringe, away from the formal stuff in the conference hall. We saw three fringe events covering big issues. EU relationships, tax reform and a green economy. They were standing room only. The major difference from the Edfest, unless I've really missed something at the underbelly cowgate, is the presence of lobbyists. Some are obvious. They have a stand in the exhibition hall. Even J.C. Bamford, arch-Tory donors. When those guys pop up at a Labour conference, you know the tide, tide isn't just turning, it has turned. Others are undercover. When the host of one fringe event asked, how many of you are paid to be here? At least a third of the audience put their hands up. What about the content? It's simplistic to characterise a change in Labour under Starner as power winning over protest. But my takeaway is that the adults are back in charge of the party. And by the end of 2024, hopefully, the country. Here's an example from a fringe meeting on the EU. The panel was hardcore Remainer. Hilary Benn, Douglas Alexander, Stella Creasy. The room was packed, many hoping that Labour will fully negotiate the Trade and Cooperation Agreement, TCA, as a stepping stone to rejoin the customs union single market. Prepared to be disappointed was the message. The EU has moved on. They have bigger things on their plate. Enlargement, Ukraine, the green transition. We need to rebuild trust and earn the right to engage again through small steps. Then there's the vision thing. Where is it, Starman Reeves? The problem is they're both wooden and nervous speakers. And it's not what you say, but how you say it. If the message isn't what you want to hear, if it isn't your vision, it isn't visionary. That's part of it, part of the problem. But maybe it's there hiding in plain sight. Labour's core mission is to change the UK's long-term rate of growth. Not very memorable. Supply-side social democracy is scarcely better. Call it a decade of renewal, and that's edging towards a vision. We chatted to a constituency delegate in a fringe event queue. She was at the 1996 Blackpool conference, the last before May 1997. For all Rachel Reeves' downbeat messaging and clunky delivery, she said her speech brought a tear to her eye, like 27 years ago. There's a trend for extremely long films, books and streaming series. We look at why. Long enough. The intermission is back. For the bladder challenge, the decision of View Cinemas to introduce an intermission into Martin Scorsese's Killers of the Flower Moon is good news. The film is 206 minutes long. It gives us a chance to go to the loo get a popcorn refill, or even decide to leave at half-time without the walk of shame. Films have been getting longer. The average length is now 107 minutes, with the most popular coming at nearly 150 minutes. Oppenheimer and Avengers Endgame are over three hours. Scorsese has form. 
His previous film, The Irishman, funded by Netflix, was 219 minutes. Movie making has been dotted with really long, great films. Lawrence of Arabia, 212 minutes. The Godfather, 175 minutes. Apocalypse Now, 202 minutes. Schindler's List, 195 minutes. Perhaps it's understandable when looking at the sweep of history, an epic subject, a mass of characters to explore, or a complex multi-layered plot. It doesn't have to be like this. Ridley Scott's new film Napoleon, a nail-on epic subject, is just, just, 158 minutes. Not yet released, it looks spectacular from the trailers. His sword and sandal classic Gladiator is 155 minutes. So what explains it? Competition from streaming may be part of the answer. It is conditioning conditioned audiences to expect more of everything. They've been fed a diet of expansively developed plot and character unencumbered by commercial constraints. Creative overindulgence is a factor. Who's going to stand up to Marty and ask him to cut 30 minutes from Killers of the Flower Moon? Not Apple, who paid for it. After Breaking Bad creator Vince Gilligan was given free license on Better Call Saul, one of the best pre-sequels, but 70 hours over seven series? The all-powerful director theory also seems to fit novels. Instead of the producer reigning in the director, it's the editor failing to whisper in the author's ear, I think this might be 200 pages too long. Donna Tartt's The Secret History, published in 1992 as a runaway bestseller, the original dark academia novel. Unputdownable literary fiction, a rare combination. Tartt only writes one book per decade, and 2010's was The Goldfinch. Overlong at 864 pages, it could have been a masterpiece at 500. J.K. Rowling, writing as Robert Galbraith's latest, The Running Game, runs to 1,024 pages. I haven't read it and I'm not going to, but the reviews say it's riddled with over-exposition and repetition. For every example of bloated length in whatever media I look at, I found an opposite case, where length is not only justified but fundamental to its greatness. Don DeLillo's 1997 novel Underworld is 827 pages. The first 40 pages are about someone catching a baseball at a Giants versus Dodgers game. Yet it stands up as the author's entry into the great American novel debate. It's a matter of personal taste, ultimately. But if the creator is making demands on our time, patience and bladders, the quality bar is set very high. Finally to Hong Kong, where we find heroism in an unexpected place. Ideas are bulletproof. The Chinese government has many ways of suppressing free speech. For the Muslim Uyghurs of Xinjiang province, re-education in labour camps. For the Han Chinese majority, the authorities use the Great Firewall of China to block access to Google and Facebook and operate one of the most intrusive and extensive surveillance states in the world. Or they just bore people into submission, with the latest bestseller by their president, Xi Jinping thought on socialism with Chinese characteristics for a new era. In Hong Kong, despite the implementation of the repressive national security law, the vestiges of the one country, two systems concept that dates back to the 1997 transfer of sovereignty back to China are hanging on. Facebook and Google aren't blocked. There are some remnants of a free press and a very slightly independent judiciary and legislature survive. 
So without the apparatus available to them in the mainland, the authorities have to resort to rather more underhand tactics, or to be more exact, good old-fashioned bureaucracy. Mount Zero is a proudly independent bookshop on Taiping Shan Street on Hong Kong Island that features in Time Out's Guide to Hong Kong. It stocks local and Taiwanese titles, including books by pro-democracy figures and critics in Beijing that mainstream bookstores have withdrawn from sale. The shop is on a dead end, and over the years the tiny pavement-width tiled area outside the store has been used for impromptu meetings, small art exhibitions and micro-community events. In September, the Hong Kong Lands Department issued a notice to the bookshop owners that the tiled area has been built on a pavement and is an illegal occupation of government land, for which, unless rectified, the occupants face a 500,000 Hong Kong dollar fine, that's £50,000, or six months in prison. Bureaucracy with Xi Jinping characteristics. Please do go to the Still Navigating blog and you'll see there a picture of the front of Mount Zero Bookshop, and you'll understand why I've called this post Ideas of Bulletproof. This was the Still Navigating podcast. Everything you've heard today and a lot more is on stillnavigating.com. Thanks for listening. We'll be back soon.